Well, I'm thankful for all who have led us in worship today, and our sermon series continues with our text being from Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33. Listen now for God's word coming to you and for you from Matthew 14. Immediately, he made the disciples get into a boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but by this time the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Let us pray together. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be pleasing to you. Come, Holy Spirit, come, whether we are ready or not. Amen. I never liked swimming in the Greenfield neighborhood pool. The pool in our neighborhood was in walking distance of my house, but when we went to the Greenfield pool, we'd have to get in the car. No thank you. We didn't live in the neighborhood for the Greenfield pool, and so we needed to pay an entrance fee. The Greenfield pool didn't have a slide, and I loved going down the slide at the pool. But the primary reason I didn't like swimming at the Greenfield pool was this. It had a high dive. And on more than one occasion, I waited in line, climbed to the top of the high dive, and walked out towards the edge. From there, I would lean over to see the water. And way up high, I would swat away errant clouds and be on the lookout for small aircraft and weather balloons. And on multiple occasions, the height was just too much. And with shame, I would climb back down the ladder, conquered by the cruel combination of diving board and height and fear. In our scripture this morning, we see and hear a familiar story one that many of us have heard on the felt board as young children, a story that begins in fear, but one that ends in worship. 
And in Matthew's telling of the story, Jesus is simply trying to clear the room. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus is seeking to retreat, to withdraw, but a hungry crowd of people find him. Jesus feels compassion for these people, and he teaches them and equips the disciples to feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And following this miracle of abundance, Jesus goes back to his primary goal, to get away, to pray. The crowd is dismissed, and the text says that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. He seems to not so subtly urge them to get going out onto the sea. And Jesus goes off and prays. And the disciples' boat is caught in a storm. They're a ways off from the shore, and their boat is being beaten by the waves. Let's be reminded that the disciples, many of them, were trained fishermen. Certainly a minor squall wouldn't throw them off too much. Although this storm seems pretty serious. It says the winds were against them. They're out on the water, protected in a boat, but still vulnerable to the waves and water and other elements. Water plays a remarkably common role throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. Water is essential for animal and plant and human life, but it was difficult to access and very limited in the ancient world. So water, in one sense, is synonymous with blessing. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. There was also an understanding that water was untamable, unpredictable, and wild. In Genesis, we see that God's Spirit hovered over the waters of the darkness and the deep sea. Later in Genesis, we see the destructive power of water. As the earth is flooded for 40 days and 40 nights, the only survivors are those in the ark, the boat that shelters Noah and his family, and friends and animals. In Exodus, the Israelites, now freed from slavery in Egypt, are fleeing toward the promised land, and God parts the waters of the Red Sea for them to walk across on dry land. In the book of Joshua, chapter 14, after time in the wilderness, God's people must cross the Jordan River, and God heaps up again the waters for the Ark of the Covenant and the people to cross yet again. In the New Testament, Jesus and his disciples have an experience with the storm at sea. And in Mark's telling, Jesus is awoken by the frightened disciples, rebukes the wind and the waves, telling them to be quiet, to be still. Bible scholar Eugene Boring states, the sea itself connotes chaos. It's early in the morning, and the disciples are deep into the chaos, far from any way out. And it's there that matters move from bad to worse. Perhaps it's the salt water splashing them in their eyes. Maybe it's the night without sleep, being battered and tossed by the waves. Maybe it's just too dark for them to see clearly this early in the morning. The disciples are terrified, and they see something walking on the water towards them. 
and they are convinced it is a ghost. They are filled with fear. From within the boat, they are safe and afloat. They are not going to capsize, but they are still battered by the waves and the rain. Many times, ships and boats have drawn an analogy to the global capital C church. Not like a cruise ship where the folks inside are passengers, but a boat where the congregation is the crew. The church as a ship is still seen as analogous in many aspects. Our very own children's ministry building, I'm told, is designed to resemble the outline of a ship. Some churches refer to the central part of their sanctuary as a nave, sharing the common etymology in Latin of navis for ship. The church is a ship, a safe harbor and place of rescue from the deep waters of the world and yet, in this postmodern reality, we also know that the church in America is perhaps a weaker and older vessel than it once was. The boat has less social and invitational influence than in previous generations, as more and more ships lose their crew, more sailors and captains disembarking, and boats remain docked in the harbor, no longer out at sea. Jesus walks on the water. And in this tableau, Christ has words for the troubled church at sea. There's a recent article from the Atlantic that has made its rounds and been shared and reshared. It's entitled, The Misunderstood Reason Millions of Americans Stop Going to Church. The piece shares data about 40 million Americans that have stopped attending church in the last 25 years. And these reasons are myriad. Some of these individuals are simply overworked. They're working 60, 70 hours a week, and Sunday becomes a necessary day of rest away from the church. Some people are in a stage of life with a young family where the only consistent routine is inconsistency. And deep, meaningful spiritual connections and worship become a lower priority. Some have been abused by the church. Church hurt is a new phrase to encapsulate the trauma and pain, emotional scarring that has taken place within congregations by pastors and ministry leaders and others that have failed to protect vulnerable people. The church has also gotten smaller. The average size of a Christian congregation in America has decreased from 137 people to just 65 people. What words would Christ have for the church today? If Jesus were walking on water toward the church today, what would Jesus say to the troubled church, beaten by the waves, to the faithful, struggling at the oars amid the downpour? The disciples cry out in fear, but the words Jesus says to them, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. The words of Christ inspire confidence, not in brick-and-mortar institutions, not in budgets and programming, not in performance or social influence. The words of Christ to the disciples in the boat, to the troubled church, is to take courage. Fear not. Have faith 
in God. The second act of the story, only featured in Matthew's telling, shows Peter literally stepping out in faith. Peter feels compelled by the message, and he stands up and asks Jesus if he can walk on the water towards him. And Jesus bids him, come on. How strange those first few steps on the water must have felt. Knowing all the while the properties of physics should not allow Peter to walk on water. Or perhaps Peter was so transfixed and focused on Jesus that he didn't even think about the impossibility of his steps. He just walked with his eyes locked on Jesus. From bold confidence, Peter again feels the wind and the rain. He feels vulnerable out away from the boat. He loses his focus and starts to sink. Peter is faithful and unfaithful. He is believing and unbelieving. He is emboldened with certainty and an irrefutable doubter. And nonetheless, Jesus saves him, reaches out his hand and asks Peter, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And let's be clear, we can critique Peter for his doubt, for losing focus on Jesus, but there are 11 other disciples that did not get out of the boat. The term little faith, I don't hear it so much as an insult or a critique, for we're told that even faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. Peter's risk and boldness, his little faith in Jesus, has inspired the disciples from fear and trembling toward a posture of worship. Peter's little faith has centered Jesus in the story, centered Jesus' actions away from the disciples' fear. For those in the boat have taken notice of Jesus walking on the water toward them, the water that they would have known as chaotic and unpredictable, as uncertain and hostile, the same water that has beaten against their boat terrifying them. Jesus triumphs over the waters, and he gives what he commands. Courage, take heart, it is I. These words in the Greek, ego I me, it means it is I, but there's a connection to the Hebrew I am. The words uttered when Moses asked, who shall I say sent me? I am that I am. Jesus, the bringer of courage, reveals his divinity to the disciples and to us as the readers and the hearers and the doers of this word. Jesus exercises a prerogative that belongs to God alone. Jesus walks on water toward the disciples toward the church, but also toward the vulnerable, the hurting, those that strain against the oars. Jesus, divine in power, reminds us of the prophecy and the promise in Isaiah, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. Yet the purpose of this story 
is beyond showing and proving the divine identity of Christ. The gospel writer is interested in whether we move because of this story or not. For Peter takes a bold step. And this reminds us that the cost of discipleship is risky and exciting, exhilarating and precarious. Peter sets an example of being willing to step out in bold faithfulness to where Jesus is. Will Williman puts it this way. If Peter had not ventured forth, had not obeyed the call to walk on the water, then Peter would never have had the great opportunity for recognition of Jesus and rescue by Jesus. The story today implies if you want to be close to Jesus, you have to venture forth out on the sea. You have to prove his promises through trusting his promises, through risk and adventure. Peter's boldness is admirable, but the primary bold step, well, that belongs to Jesus. The next step, the very next step, well, that belongs to us. As Jesus reveals that he is one with God, the liberator and redeemer of Israel, he moves towards the hurting. The next step is for us, both individually and communally, to step out in loving our neighbors, in caring for the brokenhearted and the impoverished. As Jesus walks towards the disciples, he does the impossible. He walks on the chaotic sea, and we are inspired to do what is often described as impossible. Our next step is to love our neighbors and love our enemies. As Jesus walks out and offers courage to those in the boat, the next step is for us to risk something big for something good, to include someone that is often overlooked, to welcome, invite, and love when our first reaction might be to judge. Jesus offers courage for the church to try something new, to dream God-sized dreams, to see abundance and possibility where the world sees limitations and barriers. If Jesus has moved toward us, welcomed us, considered us, how can we not be moved to bold faithfulness in taking our first step even with the little faith we have. Amen. Perhaps that